0: It is good to be with you in the presence of the Lord today, and hello to everybody with us worshiping from many different locations online today. It is good to be with you as well. We're beginning a four-week series today called The Bible. Would you like to take any guesses what this series is about? Correct. Good. Our aim in this series is to holistically examine our Bibles and answer some of the difficult and intriguing questions about our relationship with the text So today, my hope is to present to you uh, some reasoning behind why the Bible is both true and authoritative. So since I'm preaching about the Bible, instead of actually walking us exegetically through Scripture, I want you to know I'm very outside of my comfort zone. Uh, I'd rather just preach the text to you than about the Bible, but is that okay if I just teach about the Bible today? Okay, thank you. Um, before we get in, I, I do want to say this. Questions are good and helpful, and they are, um, they are very, very welcome here at Redeemer. Um, they're completely acceptable and encouraged. All of our questions help us in our growth, in our understanding, in our development. Um, and all questions are good, including the probing ones, the difficult ones, like, uh, as original manuscripts have been translated over time, are there any errors in our modern day translations? Questions like that, exploratory questions. Uh, One of my favorite quotes is from author Caroline Westerhoff, and she writes this, Our danger lies in questioning too little, rather than too much. After all, our questions can be the voice of God. That being said, let's question the dependability and authority of God's Word today. The Evangelical Covenant Church has six affirmations, And the first is this, we affirm the centrality of the Word of God. On February 20th, 1885, our ancestors had a denominational organizational meeting. And I know this excites everybody. We actually have access to the minutes of that meeting. So for the next seven or eight minutes, I'm going to read from that. I'm just playing. Uh, I'm going to summarize it for you. Um, but at that meeting, the following confession was recorded to serve as our guide for collective moral discernment and action. We, the Covenant Church, confess God's Word, the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament, as the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. This confession is actually required for you to become a member of this church because this is what we believe. So let me highlight a few features in that confession for us today. One, Scripture includes the Old and New Testaments. Yes, we know that the arrival of Jesus Christ commenced the New Covenant, but that does not eliminate Genesis to Malachi. The Old Testament enlightens us to how severe our sin problem is and how desperately we are in need of a Savior. If you look at the entire biblical narrative as a play. Act 4 would be Jesus and Act 5 would be the church, right? But Jesus and the church don't make a lot of sense without Act 1 and 2 and 3, which would have been creation and the fall in Israel's history. So we understand the biblical narrative as a whole because we're given the foundational Scriptures in the Old Testament. So if this interests you, I encourage you to pick up this commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Um, I got my copy, it's this big, I got my copy when our beloved Pat Lloyd got her promotion to heaven. Uh, She gifted that to me before she passed away. She also wrote a little note on the inside cover that included some threats. So, if you know Patricia Lloyd, you're not surprised. Number two, Scripture is the perfect rule for faith. To defend this and articulate this, I'll defer to 17th century German theologian Philip Spainer, who said, thought should be given to a more extensive use of the Word of God. We know that by nature we have no good in us. If there's to be any good in us, it must be brought about by God. To this end, the Word of God is the powerful means since faith must be awakened through the gospel, therefore the more at home the Word of God is among us, the more we shall bring about faith and its fruits. Now, I don't have the audacity today to elaborate on Philip Spainer, so we'll just move on, but we'll be coming back to that faith component in a few minutes. Number three, Scripture is the perfect rule for Doctrine. How many of you have ever uh, ordered an item off of an a la carte menu? This is interactive. How many of you have ever been out to eat and you've ordered an a la carte item? So this is an item, right, that you can order separate from the whole meal. The church today is guilty of looking at Scripture like an a la carte menu. I'm going to take this verse, but I'm going to reject this one. I'm going to apply this passage to my life, but I don't want to apply this one. And we cannot treat God's Word like an a la carte menu. You can't order the taco and disregard the rice and beans. And I'm sorry for any of you who are so legalistic, you're mad at me right now for comparing God's Word to the taco. I'm just saying, you can't order a portion of it and disregard the rest. We need all of it, cover to cover. Our doctrine is built on the totality of Scripture, the Old and New Testament, Genesis to Revelation. That deserved one amen. Thank you. Uh, Number four, Scripture is the perfect rule for conduct. The Bible is full of principles and precepts and commands and warnings and guidelines, full of counsel, all of which steer our lives toward that which is God honoring and good for our neighbor. Scripture was given to reveal our way to salvation, we know but also to train us in righteousness, not that we would just receive the gift of salvation and then not walk out a righteous lifestyle. We need to do both. Colossians 1 says that the Scripture tells us how to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. As it comes to our doctrine, I'm reminded of a quote from our former senior pastor, Bill Clark. One day he stood here years ago and said, The church is full of people today who are educated way beyond their level of obedience. Ooh, that's rich, isn't it? It's not just about knowing God's word, but applying it, living it. So, cover to cover, faith, doctrine, conduct, but how do we know it's true? I mean, how do we know that it's true and then authoritative? Is the Bible true? 2 Timothy 3.16 in the King James, this is commonly quoted to support the authority of Scripture. You might be familiar with this verse today. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Given by inspiration of God other translations put it this way, all Scripture is God-breathed. Let me explain briefly what inspired or God-breathed means. It means that God is the ultimate source of truth, period. But we must not imagine Him forcing human writers into some sort of mystical trance, and then controlling their minds and supernaturally reaching out from heaven and guiding their hand with a pen to the paper and giving us text. That would be God using human writers as puppets. And that's not how God operated. God used human authors as His instruments to communicate His inspired Word, His revelation for mankind. So, to defend this, true nature of Scripture, I think we need to consider two things today. One would be ancient manuscripts, and two would be modern translations. Ancient manuscripts. There is absolutely, undoubtedly plentiful evidence for superior New Testament reliability over all other ancient documents. In the Greek alone, we have over 5,800 manuscripts today. They average 450 pages in length. In total, there are more than 2.6 million pages of text, leaving hundreds of eyewitnesses. And because of the quantity of these manuscripts, they're cross-checked for accuracy. And their internal consistency is 99.5% pure. That is astonishing. That is amazing accuracy of God's Word being handed over and over from generation to generation over time. And this does not include over 20,000 other copies in languages like Latin and Aramaic and Coptic. I like to imagine that there are thousands more hiding in private collections and churches and libraries around the world. So a very strong argument for the reliability of Scripture is the timing in which it was written. Almost all biblical scholars agree that the entire New Testament was written before the close of the first century, which means that they were all completed within 70 years of the time Jesus was crucified. Why is this important? Well, it means that the pages were penned in an era of eyewitnesses and personal accounts. Meaning, if anything was released and distributed or copied and handed out that was inaccurate, you had a strong case from eyewitnesses and personal accounts that would have contested it. You probably would have had people step forward and say, Whoa, baby! I was at the Mount of Olives that day. That's not what he said, and that's not true. So this is all written in a time when people experienced Jesus and his earliest disciples in the flesh— And they would have contested this if it were untrue, but we have no ancient documents from the first century that challenge New Testament text. Is this exciting, anybody? Y'all are like, I came to church today, now I'm in history class. Let's look at this for some further comparative context. And and Billy Adams told me how to pronounce the top author, but we're going to go with Oklahoma version. That's Herodotus. Herodotus, he wrote from 480 to... uh, 425 BC. The earliest copy that we have of his original writing is AD 900. We only have eight copies of his work, and the time between the original and the copy is 1,300 years. Plato, 427, I'm squinting, 427 to 347 BC. AD 900 is the earliest copy. We only have seven copies of his work. The time between his original and the copies that started to be made was 1,200 years. And you can see something similar with Aristotle and Caesar, but in the New Testament where we receive that text written between 50 and 100 A.D., earliest copy was 130, and we have 5,800-plus copies. That's less than 100 years from the events that these copies started being made with a 99.5% accuracy. Yes! This is astonishing how God has preserved His inspired text throughout time, throughout history, In the hands of flawed people. The 99.5% accuracy, though, is what some people trip up on, because they expect perfection. Although it's nearly perfect, it brings us to our second point today, which is modern translations. And here's the process through which we receive our English Bibles that you hold and study today. It starts with inspiration, The divine author, God breathed through human authors, chosen by God at a specific time and place to document that inspired word, his instruments. And then transmission of the Bible began as copies were being made over time. And we have to keep in mind here that prior to the invention of the printing press in the 1400s, all copies of the Bible were handwritten Scribes made occasional mistakes, and you can't hate on them for that, because I'd like you to sit down and write 450 pages, and let's cross-check you and me. I mean, we would misspell some words. We would leave some letters out. We would reverse some words. This process was taken so seriously that if and when mistakes were found and identified, entire manuscripts would be thrown out. But we still know that there were minor mistakes. And this brings us to textual criticism, a discipline that compares the various copies of the biblical text to determine what was most likely the original. What was most likely the original message? And that's how we receive multiple translations today. Here's an example, a modern day example of textual criticism. Let's pretend that you have 50 friends. We don't have to pretend that. I know you have friends. Let's pretend that your 50 closest friends or family members all within a week's time sent you the same text message, and it went like this. Sorry, they told you that they received this text message. Congratulations, you've won $10 million. Your 50 closest friends all just cashed in. Everybody close to you just retired. Everybody went and cashed that in and, and made $10 million. So you're watching and you're observing, and you're, all of your buddies are just filthy rich now. And a week later, after watching your, your 50 friends get $10 million, you receive this text Congratulations, you have something, just one $10 million. would you believe it's true? Yes! I know you receive all sorts of scam, and what is this? Yeah, scam emails and text messages and things that are not true, but you just watched 50 of your closest friends get a very similar text and cash it in and make $10 million. There's no way that you delete that and think there's a couple errors in here. You wouldn't do it. You would inquire, you would go to the bank, and you would say, is this the same thing that my friends got? And they'd go, yeah, it is. I'm sorry, we just had a couple of typos. Here's your money. This is a modern-day example of textual criticism. In the same vein, we understand Romans 12.2 to mean, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. Do not be conformed to this age. Do not be fashioned according to this world. Do not imitate this world. Don't be like the people of this world. We even have the Hawaiian Pigeon Bible that says, no make how like the people nowadays telling you how to do it. I mean, it's all kind of the same thing. It's just been translated over time from different languages through different translations, different interpreters, different committees. But the meaning is the same, and it doesn't weaken, weaken or dilute the inspired Word of God at all. Another example, the 5,800 manuscripts that I mentioned. Let's pretend somebody brought them all in here with forklifts, and we all came in here and started reading them and translating them together. And let's say that there was a story in those manuscripts, and 5,700 of them used the word heaven. Heaven. And then there was a pile over here of a hundred that used the word sky. Well, we got 5,700 that said heaven, and we got a hundred that said sky. What word do you think we're going to go with if we're releasing a new translation of the Bible? Thank you, you get extra credit. But that question was for everybody. What word are we going to use? That's textual criticism, trying to identify by cross-checking what is the original text. But the bottom line is, even with our modern research and archaeology that demonstrates astonishing accuracy of Scripture, no matter how much evidence points to the reliability and integrity of God's Word, it has no authority in your life or in my life until we take that final step of faith. We take that step of faith As much as we have to have faith that Christ is who He says He is, we have to have faith that this Bible is God-breathed, inspired by God for us and for His church. Unless you take that step of faith, then the Bible's not going to have authority in your life. I was with a former student of mine recently, and he told me that he was going on a hunt. And I said, that's great. What are you going to hunt? And very straight-faced, he looked at me, and he said, Bigfoot. He was serious. He was going on a hunt. Do you know in Oklahoma, there's a $25,000 reward for capturing Bigfoot? Watch this video.
1: So we have this Bigfoot festival there in Honubby. Starts in October And so what we're trying to do is promote that festival, promote that area, get people to come into that area because we believe if they come to our area, they'll want to come back. They're going to tell their friends. They're going to bring people back. Again, what we're going to look at is by offering a bounty on Bigfoot. So what we want to try to do is offer a bounty of $25,000 for a real-life Bigfoot. We're going to offer the opportunity to buy licenses and buy tags. Now our goal is not to kill Bigfoot. We want to make sure that everybody understands that we're not trying to shoot Bigfoot. What we want to do is trap Bigfoot and that we're offering for those who want to come out and get in a hunt and try to trap Bigfoot a 25000 This is my goal is to try to get the wildlife department to maybe support a $25,000 bounty on Bigfoot, and that by doing so, we're going to have lots of people come out and want to participate in looking for Bigfoot. I've already been contacted by many, many people who just want to buy a license to frame and put on their wall. The goal is not
0: to shoot Bigfoot, it's to trap him. I mean, people have faith that Bigfoot is out there. And if they go on enough hunts, they're going to be the lucky one that can Well, maybe, not unlucky, but. We're designed by God to have faith because he wants your faith in him. But we can also put our faith in many things. If you drove here today, you had faith in everybody else on the road around you. You had faith that they would stay in the lines. If you have an upcoming procedure, you have faith in your doctor. If you need a root canal, you have faith in your dentist. You have faith in the promises of your spouse. We're designed to have faith. Some of you even had faith that Arkansas could beat Texas. Big faith. Congratulations. So, at the end of the day, it doesn't seem far-fetched that 5,800 manuscripts with 99.5% purity and accuracy could be true. But still, I could stand up here and continue to just unload statistics and stories and ideas and theories and everything else, and one could argue with all of them. But what you cannot argue with is someone's testimony, You can't. So, when I survey my own life and I think about my own life experiences and my testimony, I have really wrestled with Scripture. I've wept with Scripture. The Bible has refined me and God has used His Word to help heal me. I have feasted on Scripture and I have experienced droughts with Scripture. I've prayed the Scriptures. When I read my Bible, I feel like God is speaking directly to me, which, by the way, He is. So if you want to hear God speak to you out loud today, audibly, just go to lunch with somebody and open the Bible and have them read it to you. When I read the text with others, it's some of the most intimate fellowship that I've ever experienced in my life. Scripture has been a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, and I have it hidden in my heart many of you can relate. So I just wonder today if you will take time to do a survey as well of your own life and your own testimony and praise God for the way that his word has been a part of your story. If it hasn't been, maybe today could be the beginning. Would you bow your heads? Lord, your law is perfect and it revives our souls. Your precepts are right, causing our hearts to rejoice. Your commands are pure and they enlighten our eyes. Your rules and ordinances are true and righteous. Altogether, your word is to be desired more than gold. Your word is sweeter than honey. In keeping your word, there is great reward. How blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Help us to be people who meditate on your word day and night as divine authority. And in doing so, let us be like trees planted by streams of water. Once again, thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church podcast. To stay connected to all that God is doing here at Redeemer, visit our website at RedeemerTulsa.org or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have a blessed week.